G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon. In each episode, I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a founding member and drummer of one of Australia's most acclaimed bands of the last 25 years. They've racked up scores of ARIA nominations, an Australian Music Prize, and their new album, Bootakins, is out now. They have also managed that rarest of things in a band to age and mature gracefully through their career as people and performers. Dave Williams from Augie March, welcome to my favourite album. Thanks, Jeremy. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Dave, what is your favourite album? Well, today I'm going to speak about Dire Straits' first record, Dire Straits. You get a shiver in the dark, it's raining in the park, but meantime... So this album came out in 1978. I'm not sure exactly how old you are or if you were alive then, but tell me about your entry point for Dire Straits and how you first got into this record. My entry point into it was probably as much through a member of the Augie March, Adam Donovan. We met up in central Victoria and were playing sport together and then realised we lived next door to one another and then realised we both played instruments, played guitar and he was a big fan of Die Straits and I, I remember going to his house and bringing my guitar over there and we ran through Sultans of Swing and I played the chords and he did the solo and right then I knew, yeah, he's a better guitar player than me. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but in the garage where we ran that song, which he sort of had set up as his own little rehearsal room, his mum and dad had really helped out. He had a drum set in the corner and I just gravitated over to that and I'd done a bit of playing on that before, you know, just through school and church incidentally and he was a big fan of that band and we just started learning those songs and I think I bought the first, my brother actually bought the first record, the one I'm talking about, but it was quite strange. We put it in the CD player and it played Love Over Gold, which was Die Straits' fourth record. It was a very odd thing. So this CD, even though it had printed on it all the, the regular information for the first record, actually it wasn't the first record, but we then went and got that record and the drumming on that was so amazing. Just all the playing is incredible on it. It's quite raw and very lyrical. Such a lyrical guitar player, Mark Knopfler. Yeah, it really connected with me. Well, it's funny you were saying that about the guitar solo in Sultans of Swing and that sort of being the deciding thing that pushed you towards the drums instead of the guitar because that is actually a really... It doesn't sound, I think, on the record as difficult to play as it is, but I, I know from like experience and from people... I know like Kevin Parker's been trying to learn that, from Tamer Parler's been trying to learn that solo for a couple of years now, but there's something about the playing, I think, on this record... And going off what you just said then about it's not showy, they're not like a show-off band, but the parts are all really great and the playing is all incredibly dynamic, especially 
across this record where the production is so simple when it is so much about the playing? Yeah. Yeah, look, I'd say there is a bit of show about it. It's a bit showy. Like, you know, I, even members of my band turn their nose up at it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it feels so... It's like an effortlessness about the playing and the songs that for a 30-year-old, he was 30 or 28 when Mark Knopfler was 28 when he made that record and he'd already been a journalist. You know, he was a journo and a muso, but not a professional one. He was a journalist by trade. So for someone to arrive on this, you know, that band to arrive like that is amazing. I reckon it's one of the greatest first records ever because it's just so, everything about it is so realised. But there's also a rawness about it and a spontaneity that, Jesus, it's so hard to capture that. It does have that feeling of like they feel more like a lived-in band than they actually were at that time. They hadn't been together long at all when they cut this record. And even, you know, like the song Sultans of Swing, which is probably the best-known track on this record, that was really early because that's a, that's a demo. That was on their first demo tape. But I wonder yeah. if it's partly because... The drummer in the band, Pick Withers, was actually a really experienced session cat before getting into the band, if that's part of the reason. You tell me what you think about this, if that's part of the reason why the band has feels like it's a much more experienced and mature band than they actually were. Well, I think you're right. I think Mark and Pick were sort of the... Co- not, you know, Mark's definitely the leader of the band, but having a drummer like Pick Withers definitely helped realise that It'd make it sound so spontaneous, but also so uh, thought out a bit too. They really struck that balance nicely. And Pick, definitely because he'd been in the studio as a drummer, he and could go across a few different styles quite easily. His playing is super nuanced, unbelievable, unbelievably nuanced. That really suited. He really rose. Him and him and Mark. Really, I think they're at a create. They were sort of the creative giants in the band, and they had the right mix there. You know, David and John Illsley were workmanlike, but really just locked in like a Swiss watch. You know, with the gears all turning together. You just mentioned like the different styles that Pick Withers could play, and I wanted to ask you about the stylistic makeup of Dire Straits because you know they went sort of as they mature in later records, it goes into a very like mainstream direction, and they were and they were very top forty friendly band after a while. But in this record, it sort of feels like there's a combination of you know there's like maybe JJ Kale sort of like blues influence in there somewhere and a bit of dusty sort of folkier stuff and some of the guitar playing feels like it could be on a Pink Floyd record so you know what is that you know the stylistic makeup of Dire Straits for you? I think JJ Cale definitely a touchstone Chet Atkins sort of country western swing stuff you know like Nofla made a duo record with Chet Atkins in the early 90s. Blues Definitely. The Pink Floyd thing is interesting. Yeah, there's maybe a bit jazzy too, but definitely that sort of J.J. Kale sort of groove, sort of slinky grooves 
with a bit of edge, but coming from bloody Newcastle, like a, a mining town in New, you know, in England, that's really incongruous. Yeah. So yeah, they really connected. Like that band connected with American audiences because of that. That sort of helped break them in in America. And the incandescent light, like just the, their live gigs, just the you know, just how the high quality of the playing every night, the jamminess of it too. Did you think they sounded English when you first heard them? I, I'm not sure if you knew anything about the band when you first heard the record, like whether you knew they were from England. But I don't know. Is there? I don't know if there's anything about the actual music where if you didn't know, you would go like, "This is an English band." The way you would be able to pick it with like a a Bowie record of the same period. No, I, I don't think it sounds English. Other than his voice, if you hear a bit of an English accent, other than that, it you wouldn't place it in England. And like the north of England, which is even more amazing. That part of it too was very, you know, that really, that's what they really did connect with audiences over in, in America because of the sound. It, you know, it was a bit of the British invasion vibe going on, but in a different way. Yeah, I guess it's sort of that similar idea to what, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who did in the 60s, which is take these sort of American music forms, interpret it through their own experiences, you know, on this record, I guess, particularly lyrically, and then sort of, you know, feed it back to the Americans where the inspiration for a lot of the music came from in the first place. Yeah, well, Soul of the Swing is about it. I think about a jazz, you know, there's you know mention of a jazz band in there, but other songs on that album do reference England, like the Wild West End. So, you know, lyrically, there's definitely a point where it does set it in England, but not the hit song. But Down by the Waterline as well, That was, I think that was their first single off that record. That's also the opening track on the record, and that's just an awesome opening track, like really putting a flag down early about what they're going to be getting into. It's awesome playing. Well, that's the one that sounds most Pink Floyd to me, especially that opening guitar stuff just reminds me of Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. Oh, right. I don't hear that at all, but that's amazing that you do hear that. cinematic to me this sounds a bit more dudes playing down a back alley type vibe <laughs> yeah i think it i know what you mean it's so i think it's sort of that's where it, it goes for me it starts in the other place and then goes where you're talking about and yeah although it's it's funny like there's a great interview with mark Knopfler that i saw a while back where he basically just sort of explains how most of his song well not most of his songs but a lot of his big songs were just him taking a guitar technique and then playing it on the wrong type of guitar like you know Romeo uh, and Juliet comes from him trying to play like Chet Atkins but doing it on a yeah. on a resonator instead of on a flat top or a Gretsch Country Gentleman yeah yeah now that is an interesting 
observation from him. But yeah, you can kind of hear that. Like his sound palette, he got a bit more. You know, as they went on in their career, he sort of got a bit more cinematic. He actually did music for film and the local hero, and yeah, you can hear all that sort of go into that sort of bit more diversifying it, touching on other things, piano, all those things. So yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, the sound of the band did change a lot through the years, and it got very keyboard intensive to the extent where they had to draft in extra session players when they recorded, and then like multiple people to play the parts when they toured is this mm. i'm assuming because this is the album you've chosen to talk about today is this the incarnation of dire straits that is your favorite that you you like the most of all the different versions of where the band's sound went i love this album because of the strength of the songs there's not for me there's no real low point on the record there's a really awesome narrative like an arc to the record that they recorded it in four days, pretty much live, is also unreal. Not necessarily my, it's one of my favourite incarnations of them. It's just that the essence of, there's a great song and also really fantastic interplay between like the vocal and the guitar playing, but also the drumming and the lead guitar, and just the way they, their, their little parts were so smart and interesting, but also they don't sound super tricky either even though they bloody are. <laughs> well, what's, that's an interesting thing you just mentioned about the narrative arc over the record. Can you talk about that for a bit, what you see the, the, the narrative arc across the album is? It feels like he's sort of walking through England, like London, pretty much, to me, down by the waterline. They're hanging out there, lovers, then they saw the swing references, then going into him witnessing jazz band in a cafe. What are some of the other ones? In the gallery, you know, which is one of my all-time favourites of them, talking about a guy trying to break into the gallery scene, you know, artistic. So it's just sort of, he's wandering around looking at different people's experiences in life and there's a real focus, I think, on maybe the, the country that he's talking about, which is in England, I think. Harry made a bareback rider Proud and free But yeah, musically, just there's quiet, loud, quite, you know, not aggressive, but intense moments. That part of the, uh, I love it when I hear records that people sort of rinse through different styles and feelings maybe feelings is I don't know if feelings is the right word but just you know moods and it doesn't seem out of place it doesn't like okay here's the slow one with the brushes and <laughs> this, this, no, no song sounds out of place to me on this record look another part of it too I think is Muff Winwood produced it who was Stevie Winwood's older brother so there's that real R&B element very elemental sound no crazy trickery it's more you can just real, really hear the pure tones of the the players and their personalities you know and really the strong personalities I hear on this record are the drums and the lead guitar but that's also a great that's not to say the rhythm and the bass were bad they've just lock in so beautifully that 
that kind of. I'm sure if you took them out, you'd notice they're just there, though. Amazing. Well, a, I th- a role player. Yeah, and that that is a dynamic I think you see in a lot of great bands. I mean, there are some bands like The Who where everyone is like playing at a hundred all the time. But I think with a lot of bands, you kind of have to pick the two people who are going to be the, for lack of a better word, the stars or the show-offs or whatever, or the people who are going <laughs> to... And then everyone else has to be really tasteful and really, like, really skillful to fit around that. But they've got to be willing to, like, see the limelight a little bit musically to other people or it just gets, everything gets too busy if everyone's trying to be big at the same time. Yeah, well, and also the Nofler's voice isn't the greatest. He really has a conversational style of singing. And especially on this record, his guitar playing, I think you said earlier, it really, it's sort of a commentary, comments on his vocal often, lots. He'll sing word and then there'll be a little rhythmic or melodic little uh, flourish on the guitar. And it happens, you know, call and response thing. Yeah, then he'll do, have his solos, which are always interesting. So yeah, that's, forgot what what you were what the question was then <laughs> that's fine i like the answer good i wanted to go back to something you said a bit earlier in this conversation which is that some of the other members of augie march turn their noses up at listening to dire straits so i'm assuming yeah, sure. based on what you said before adam's on your side but how does that shake out amongst the group who's pro dire straits and who's anti dire straits well kiernan me and donna were firmly in the dire straits Pro Dire Straits camp, and then you've got Ed and Glenn who are in the Con Dire Straits camp. Yeah, those those two boys. I think we tried putting in a record on way back in a tour van 20 years ago, and yeah, it was like stop it, none of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay too. You know, it's it's not often you drive around having listening to the Straits because you you got to hear it enough on uh, classic rock radio. But yeah, that's the beauty of of a band of five guys with, you know, different tastes. Yeah, there is elements. But, yeah, me and uh, Keenan and Adam can have a little jam along to a song in rehearsal, and, yeah, the other two members refuse to do that. <laughs> I'm always fascinated by that dynamic of, like, what music gets put on in the tour van when a band's travelling, just, like, what is what can everyone find consensus on enough? That right there, you could write a thesis on it, I reckon. What is the stuff that does get played? What's the stuff that survives, you know, every, everyone's veto power? Well, um, I'm just thinking maybe there might be a bit of, you know, some of the greats. Bowie, Keenan put on some, I remember driving around listening to The Clash. Glenn will put on some guitar bands from the 90s. Look, mostly everyone's pretty cool, you know, with whatever. It really is, you know. We tripped the light fantastic with our uh, musical taste. So it's more about just make sure it's a mixtape rather than one thing. So people have taken delight in years gone by doing a mixtape for the road, and that'll be across all lots of genres. Um, Last time I checked, Richo was listening to classical music and some jazz music as well. So, yeah, everyone's up for anything most of the time. (laughs) So it's interesting leading on to my next question. One of the things that I always like to talk about with people on this show is how the record we're talking about has influenced the guest music. And you being in a band where not everyone loves this record, how does that work out? Has this record been a direct influence on 
your music and you know how is it shaken out either just in your playing or on the records or how has this been an influence on you definitely on a personal level very very big influence on my drumming early on because pick would play along but he also would comment just like he would comment on lyrical or yeah main vocal or guitar solo stuff so there was like a a call and response there was a real jazziness about the way he approached song as well as there being he would have interesting parts he wouldn't really change up his sonic palette a lot it was always mostly the drum set but he would arrange his part in an interesting way in quite a refined way and that really helped i saw a lot of my drumming early on through that lens and you know just still to a certain extent in a lot of ways i had to become less refined to convey a bit more aggressive emotions and make it a bit more elemental you know like when you're playing a rock song make it burn but it doesn't have to be burned real super loud but you've got to really have that intensity about it and that, there was always that about it too that intensity i always can hear other people can't but i can hear that intensity with his playing definitely and especially live you contrast the album tracks with live versions and they're a lot more raw and they go out they add parts to it I always love hearing those versions as well. Did you ever get to see Dire Straits live? Because they, I mean, they toured here a fair bit. They actually, at one stage, held the record for the biggest tour in Australian history. They sold like 900,000 tickets on one tour, I think. It was the Brothers in Arms tour. Right, right, that's right. They played almost some crazy amount, actually, up in Sydney Entertainment Centre. Yeah, they, they did, did like some... 21 nights, I think, at the Entertainment Centre. 21 Center. nights, yeah. Yeah, maybe Pink is the lady who beat that recently. I'm not sure, but ridiculous. And look, that really was the... I was in primary school when that album came out and that sort of probably piqued the interest of both myself and Adam. We didn't know one another then, but I definitely loved that Money for Nothing. Where were we? What were we talking about? <laughs> Whether you ever got to see Dire Straits live? I did, yeah. Well, got to see him live on the On Every Street tour. Went twice because they released that record in 91 and me and Adam had been playing all the old songs and then they released that record and we got a bus down to Melbourne twice <laughs> <laughs> and went and watched them and bought merchandise and, yeah, we were, like, just delirious. So, yeah, it was, a, it was fun, but, yeah, I definitely... That sort of razzmatazz part of it and I didn't connect with as much. There's some songs actually on, on that record because by that time, Mark really had taken full control they weren't really a band band they he was kind of the boss but you know there was still some amazing playing on every street that he had got in jeff Picaro, who played in toto and also was a session great to play on that record and there's some amazing drumming on that really fantastic 
the song's not so great, but yeah, that definitely was an album I played along to. I played along to all their records, but yeah, that, that was when I saw them, and weirdly, the drummer who toured with them, who was the live drummer, Chris Witten, he moved to Australia for a while. I think he married an Australian woman, and I follow him on Instagram now, but he, he's since moved back to England because he was like a session drummer for Paul McCartney. He actually played on a record that I used to play along to as a kid. Edith Brickell and New Bohemian. She made a record in Wales, of all places. A lady from Texas went to Wales to make a jam band record, and he was the drummer on that record. So it's sort of weird. I've been connected to him all this time as well. So, yeah, really odd. But, hey, synchronicity. Yeah. Well, speaking of synchronicity, actually, this is not that interesting a thing to observe, but I walked into the office, I'm recording this in this morning, and someone was playing the Brothers in Arms record over the yeah. um, over the office sound system, completely unbidden, unprovoked, unconnected to this happening, but as I just walked into the sound of Walk of Life. Yeah, that's, in the air. that's an amazing story, the recording of that album as well, because when Pick Withers, le- Pick Withers eventually left, he left the band after the, the Love Over Gold, halfway through a tour, and they got a rock and roll drummer, Terry Williams, who was in Rock Pile, which is like a rock and roll band. From Nick Lowe was a member of that band. Very different. So they went from a guy with nuance and jazzy to a sort of rock and roll dude with heaps of cymbals and heaps of stuff. And they started recording Brothers in Arms in the, I think, Bahamas, in Nassau. And after the second day, the producer said, no, nah, Terry's not the guy. So they literally called Omar Hakim. So a, a drummer who's on, you know, he was like a session guy just making his way in New York. He toured with Sting from Sting's first solo record. They called him. He flew out, did that whole album in two days or something. Wow. Incredible. Right, unbelievable. And the drummer, Terry, he's just like sitting in the pool. He got sacked but then came back for the just the two-year world tour. That phenomenal, like crazy, amazing, like getting a call, flew out, flew out the next day and came and nailed all those hit songs. That's all Omar Hakim playing on that record. Apart from the big drum fill at the start of Money For Nothing, that's Terry Williams. That's the only time he appeared on the record. <laughs> You know, he probably got a pretty good deal out of that. He might not get as much mechanical royalties, but he got to do the tour and probably took the credit at the time. He got to do the tour big time. Yeah, yeah. He would have made a bit of money, but geez, man. He joined the band and then getting the sack. Oh, no, nah, that's not cool. Mm. But that's where it's not a real band in the end. <laughs> well, the band just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame literally like maybe a day or two yeah. before we were recording this. I saw that. And Mark Knopfler and Pick Withers didn't show up. Who got Johnny Orsley and David Knopfler showed up? Who showed up? I think, yeah, I think that was it. I think it was just the two of them. Well, Ed Bicknell, their manager, who had been with them from day one, I'd be surprised 
if he didn't turn up. Now he's a drummer himself who made a record. They made a record called The Knockin' Hillbillies in 1990, which had a, a small hit on it called Your Own Sweet Way. That's another little odd to the country, country folk record. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting... There's no explanation as to why they didn't show up. And then there's, whoever gave the speech at the ceremony just said, you know, it's personal reasons why he doesn't want to be there. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Like, do you think... What's your view on them not... What's your, actually, what's your view on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in general? Would you turn up if, if Augie March got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I would seriously think about it. I don't really have a big view on it. I don't really have a strong feeling whether it's a good thing or it's the antithesis of what rock and roll is about. I like that your peers are there and I think they induct you into it. That's kind of the thing that is great about it, I think, just, you know, that you're acknowledged by your colleagues and the people in the industry that you work in because a lot of the time it's a very solitary... If you're a solo performer, it's super solitary. If you're in a band, you're wandering around in the dark half the time and if people, you know audiences don't turn up then you get instant feedback in this job <laughs> it can be very yeah pretty hard but uh i'm not sure like i don't know what the personality is involved in that maybe well Nofla lives in america now he's really based in america and yeah there's a lot of members that have rinsed through that band but yeah maybe they yeah no idea mark Nofla's been married five times so i don't know if he'd be the easiest guy to hang with that's an interesting question. Has, has Mark Knopfler had more wives or has Dire Straits had more drummers? It'd be a similar amount because Pick Withers, Tony Williams, Omar Hakeem, Chris Whitten who toured, but then on every street has Jeff Beccaro and I think Jeff Beccaro's the only one on that. I think there's probably one more drummer because I think Chris might have played on a, on a song. But, yeah, good on him for going back, you know, meeting someone new, just trying to keep the dream alive, finding your soulmate. No, nah, you're not the right one. Okay, next. Uh, no, nah, you're next. <laughs> uh, tough. So when you go back and listen to this record now, when you listen to the Dire Straits, Dire Straits album, what's it like to listen to it now versus when you were a kid getting into it for the first time? Not much different other than, like, I played, literally I played to that record every day. So I learned every lick as much on the drum set I could. and But I still marvel at the just the energy and the nuance of it. So, yeah... I really marvel at that, and the, to know that they don't only they did it in four days, like yep, no overdubs, you know, or not many anyway, not the drums, you know, just the band how tight they were. So just that energy there, that it's 
implicit in every song, you know, it's really there, underpinning everything. I can really hear that, that sort of energy. Other than that, yeah, look, I, I probably couldn't get through the whole record because uh, I've flogged the hell out of it, but I found those vinyl versions of things. I also used to hang out and wait for the deluxe edition of these, these albums to hear the outtakes, but I don't know. <laughs> there hasn't been any outtakes on this because maybe, maybe there wasn't any. I know they did record Salt and Swing twice, so the long version with the big long guitar solo is on the record, and then occasionally you'll hear that on radio, and then you'll hear another version with the the guitar solo faded out, and they did they actually recorded two versions. So very odd. Well, on that note, and we'll probably play some of that long version of the guitar solo as we fade out here. Do it. But Dave, thanks so much for talking to me today about your favourite album. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a pleasure. The new album, Bootekins, from Augie March, is out now in all good and evil record retailers and online. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.